0: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lom, the host of the channel. Today we will be talking to Stephen Williams about his new book, The Reformer, How One Liberal Fought to Preempt the Russian Revolution. So, Stephen, would you like to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, uh, let me see. I I was a lawyer fairly briefly uh, in private practice and then in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, and then I uh, started teaching. I taught for seventeen years, mostly at the University of Colorado, but with visiting years elsewhere. And uh, then I was appointed to the court I'm now on, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Uh, And so I've been here since 1986, and uh, in the in the last. Uh, fifteen or sixteen years of that. I've done work on Russian history, producing first one book and called "Liberal Reform in an Illiberal Regime," uh, which is really a study of the Stalipan agrarian reforms, uh, and then this book. And the the transition, the transition there was that when I was doing proofreading uh, on the first book, I thought, well. Uh this may seem a little technical. Uh, it might be fun to do a biography and look at the whole relevant period, essentially from about 1905 to 1917, through the eyes of a particular individual.
0: So what attracted you particularly to Maklakov?
1: Well, he, I mean, a very cursory um, survey, I have to admit, uh, led me to him as likely the most uh, effective, consistent, articulate uh, advocate of the rule of law in Russia in that period, and I guess I like I like the diversity of his career, the, the fact of uh, being a very prominent lawyer, being in the Duma, the, the second, third, and fourth Dumas, uh, and uh, and being, in effect, a public intellectual, someone whose speeches and writings were uh, were typically read at the time that he wrote or spoke them.
0: So why don't you tell us a little bit about the relevant details of Makokov's life um, that you think influenced his work, particularly as a lawyer and a Duma representative?
1: Yes, uh, I've been thinking quite a lot about that. And, and part of it is, is just looking at him in his youth, and and then because of his brother, uh, one has to address the the interesting question as to why his brother turned out so differently. So I'll I'll first talk about uh, just him without regard to his brother, and I I think uh, you can see how this would lead to the sort of priorities that he had. Then I can't contrast it with his brother, which isn't much of a contrast in in many ways. He's just two years younger. So uh, how different was it? Anyway, uh, Vasily Mavkakov himself, let's look first at his father. His father combines scholarship and action in the field of medicine. He was an eye doctor, but he was also a published scholar in ophthalmology. uh, And he was, it appears... At least much of the time, de facto manager of the Moscow Eye Clinic. And so, the Moscow Eye Clinic, uh, which I visited several years ago, is still there, uh, and is still an eye clinic that survived uh, an enormous period of time, consistently doing the same thing. Anyway, uh, in the Maklakov household, uh, it appears from Vasily's account that the the political assumptions of Uh, his father, and his father's friends, uh, were that the the great reforms of Alexander II were very good, that they laid the foundation for more, uh, and that they should be pushed further. Uh, And of course, that is uh, what Akhlakov ends up doing.
0: Would you like to tell our listeners who maybe aren't aware what uh, Alexander II's reforms were? Okay.
1: Well, the, the, the three that are absolutely critical are first emancipation, uh, and the follow-up on that is uh, essentially ending the peasant's estate status, which they, uh, uh, I guess they had it while they were serfs, but even after they were serfs, they, they were still in the peasant estate, which was uh, a, which was stuck with all the work and had virtually none of the rights of ordinary people. Um, the, the second is the, uh, is rural self-government, the creation of the Zentsvo, uh, and that at least could have been, and to some extent was, uh, a source for growth of local self-government it didn't wasn't carried anywhere near as far as it might have been uh, basically I think because the regime and the elite did not trust the peasants uh, but it, but at the same time it did little to lead them along to a condition where it might have trusted them and, and the third uh, is the is judicial judicial reforms above all trying to make the courts independent uh, a reform which on paper looked good, but seems not to have actually created the kind of independence that uh, we like to see in courts. So that, those are, yeah, those those are the reforms, and and so that's that's sort of the uh, the background in which uh, sort of political background that his youth clearly gave him. Uh, they're, they're Some other things, one, one, in in his fairly early youth, uh, his mother died when he was about 11 and a half. She'd been very religious. I I don't think she contributed anything to his political thinking. She she certainly wasn't someone, as far as appears, who who used her religion as a jumping off point for some kind of political viewpoint. Uh, But then his father remarried a very distinguished member of the left intelligentsia. In fact, he had written, he had read a children's book that she had written, uh, and that that brought him into into contact uh, with a lot of other people in her set, which I think greatly broadened his his viewpoints. At least not in the sense of agreeing with people, but hearing obviously intelligent people asserting interesting ideas about political life and life more generally and finally in these early things his his friendship with Tolstoy uh, for for some time that's just occasionally a few sort of contacts really mainly looking at Tolstoy from afar but uh, during the famine of 1891 Tolstoy uh, joins organizes a group who who are trying to Uh, to to get food essentially to the peasants who are starving Uh, and uh, Maklakov joins that and in the the course of that uh, has a lot of contact with Tolstoy and then actually they become friends in this uh, curious sense Uh, Tolstoy invited him on walks and Maklakov in his memoirs Ponders why on earth would someone uh, as intelligent, sophisticated, and so forth as Tolstoy want a callow youth like me along on a walk, and he concludes that the his contribution was to enable Tolstoy to completely rest his brain. (laughs) It was uh, if he just walked along alone, he would think, and that would uh, be. Of some stress on the brain, uh, walking along with uh, Vasily Matukoff, uh chattering pleasantly, relieved um, him from that. I, I, I like the explanation partly because it's, it's a very modest explanation. It, it, uh, it doesn't suggest that he was really contributing anything except for a way for Tolstoy to empty his brain. Um, so uh, the other thing that that I think is really important in his youth is uh, his exposure to government arbitrariness. He, in the course of his youth, there were various bits of rather mild misbehavior in school, for example, the gymnasium. He shouted something against a phrase that the Tsar uh, Nicholas III, at that point, had used in a speech. And then at at the university, he was an active participant in street demonstrations. The the result of these things risked completely destroying any university career. There was something she describes as a wolf's passport, uh, which seems like an odd name because it's sort of the opposite. It's a non-passport. It's kind of current block on access to the university. And in... Macleod was was spared the consequence of this because his father knew, knew a lot of people and spoke to them. He spoke to uh, essentially the head of the police and the, minister, the ministers of education and internal affairs, uh, and they essentially worked out a deal which eliminated that. It, it appears that these severe penalties often got relaxed, so they weren't necessarily a uh, death sentence for an intellectual career or a career that demanded a, a well-trained intellect, uh, but they uh, there was sort of a risk that this could happen to anyone and uh, not all escaped from it. So um, his career is, is really dedicated to opposing government arbitrariness and it's hard for me to imagine someone who would have more um, sort of instinctive hostility to government arbitrariness. So uh, do you have questions on that then, or should I turn right to brother Nikolai?
0: Um, I was just wondering if maybe you could tell me if he adopted any of Tolstoy's ideas.
1: Ah, very few. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I think he his hostility to the death penalty can probably be credited to Tolstoy. And in in a famous speech that he gave, that wasn't directed uh, particularly to the death penalty, but he, but it involves the death penalty, and he attacks the death death penalty uh, in a way that seems to me quite Tolstoyan, uh, in the sense that. He doesn't assess practical consequences, what will happen, how will people behave, is it a good disincentive, is it a bad disincentive? Uh, What do you do about the problem of erroneous impositions of the death penalty? He doesn't talk about that at all. He just describes in very evocative terms the way in which the death penalty was imposed under uh, the famous Field Courts martial we come to later, was a basic form of incredibly... uh, uh,
0: Well, it seemed like summary
1: execution. Summary summary execution after a very brief trial conducted by a military officer who had no legal training and without appeal. So, I mean, that sort of sums it up. Um, And so uh, this is what led to the phrase de neckties, Bleph in the prime minister and minister of internal affairs at the time was the was the advocate of these in the Duma. Although the impetus for it seems to have come from the Tsar. Uh, so, anyway, he in that speech where, where the death penalty was was an, a side issue, but definitely a consequence of these uh, misbegotten courts. He um, he just describes. How it is with the uh, the family sitting by and the the person led up uh, a doctor whose job is not to provide medical help but fundamentally to assure that he's dead uh, at the end of it. Uh, he describes it in very touching terms, and uh, it seems to me that's the way a Tolstoyan would oppose the death penalty, not a kind of politically economy analysis, but just trying to move the reader uh, to hate the process. I guess the, the, the other thing is is broader. Tolstoy seems at least to have been able to, though he lapsed from it in some ways, but he, he seems to have been able to speak uh, with, with people whose ideas were totally different from his in a way that, that didn't hector them or uh, assume sort of super dignity, assume, assume that he should be listened to especially, uh, but just talked with them naturally. And Michael Koff seems always to have been able to do that. Now, Brother Nikolai. First, uh, who, who was Brother Nikolai and what did he do? He was two years younger than Vasily uh he uh, he became the Minister of Internal Affairs, which essentially can be described in this period as the top cop for russia uh, and in in that role and in in previous and later roles, he seems not to have shown the slightest sympathy uh, for the rule of law. Uh, seems more to have supported the basic idea of Russia. Uh, being properly an autocracy with uh, Nicholas II at its head. Uh, and in the most uh, direct example is the trial of Menachem Baylis. This is often spoke of, spoken of as Russia's Dreyfus affair. Someone singled out, really for no reason, with no evidence, uh, to be accused of murder uh, and and tried for it, the murder being pictured as a ritual Jewish killing in order to produce blood for Jewish rituals. Uh, this, this proceeding, although not started when uh, his brother Nikolai was Minister of Internal Affairs, was, had been barely started before and uh, was certainly pressed aggressively by brother Nikolai. Uh, including such things as uh, I'm not sure how it was done, but getting essentially either uh, could have been listening devices, finding out what the jury was talking about during the trial. Meanwhile, Vasili was one of the three defense lawyers. So it's hard to picture a more complete uh, family opposition. So uh, opposition, uh, Contest within the family. So, why is Nikolai so different? I mean, he had he had everything that I just described as being Vasily Maklakov's background, minus the Tolstoy. You have to do, as far as I can make out, Nikolai never had any relationship at all with Tolstoy. So, here are some theories, which are which are no more than theories. But the the first is that he being younger. I, I think it's possible he may have been more shaken by their mother's death and therefore more ready to cling to something that seemed terribly solid as the regime must have done for, for much of the period. The second thing is that I, I think it's clear from the, the activities uh, that he that got him in trouble in the gymnasium and, and later at the university. The Vasily was, was something of a free spirit. He was self-disciplined, but he, uh, he was ready to join, join causes uh, spontaneously and uh, speak out for himself very freely. As a result of that, he was exposed to a great deal more of the regime's arbitrariness. As so far as I can make out, uh, Nikolai had none of that. And again, that sort of fits my theory that the uh, the overexposure to the regime's arbitrariness um, played a role in the development of Vasili's thinking. And finally, um, I think it's likely that Vasili was just a good deal smarter, therefore able to process a range of ideas, think them through carefully, and and articulate them. And, uh, and that would have played a role. So I, th- I think it's it's not a complete puzzle, but I but I admit to not having a confident answer.
0: So let's talk about the role of the rule of law in Russia. Um, most people regard Russia as not being particularly based on the rule of law, that very much arbitrary, going back to Ivan Grozny, citing people like Peter the Great, Stalin, even Putin, as having a complete disregard often for the law.
1: Uh, I, I I more or less agree with that and think that uh, Maklakov would. Uh, some people regard the period of the provisional government in 1917 as the high point of liberalism in Russia. I'm not so sure. I think the, the high point, oddly, oddly enough, may be uh, the period between 1907, uh, uh, when the uh, October Manifesto and the revised fundamental laws are really coming into effect, uh, and 1917. Because you did have a constitution in that period you had you had basically a a requirement that any statute to uh, or I'm sorry any act of the Czar in we're talking about sort of internal affairs domestic policy uh, has to be based on an existing law, and the only source of such a law would be the Duma, the legislative body. Now, the the big hole in that is the uh, except, extraordinary security laws ad- adopted first in 1881, but but revised a certain amount, which essentially enabled the Ministry of Internal Affairs to exile people uh, for five years uh, on their own entirely. No nothing like a court, uh, reviewing those decisions. And those, since the statute was adopted before the, uh, October manifesto and the fundament, revised fundamental laws, um, this continued in existence, uh, right through to the, uh, February revolution in 1917. So that was the most extreme, uh, source of arbitrariness, um, but the other sources of arbitrariness were that the uh, first place, the courts were not all that independent. So when something happened that was subject to judicial review, there was very little confidence that it could be reviewed by someone who was completely even-handed and free from some kind of regime pressure. Of course, a lot of cases the regime didn't care about, so there was no pressure. So uh, so those presumably worked out fairly well, at least worked out consistently with the rule of law. Um, but, but where the regime cared as the Sheglovitah, uh, I'm not sure if that pronunciation, I've never heard anyone talk about uh, Sand is, is that have I pronounced him correctly?
0: I am a Soviet specialist. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh,
1: anyway, he he was the uh, uh, minister of internal affairs. I'm sorry, minister of justice for uh, much of the period that we're talking about. And when the uh, uh, inquiry that was conducted during the provisional government of abuses of power in the tsarist regime interrogated him, he acknowledged that uh, he was able to bend, to use his word, uh, to bend the uh, judges to his will. And I think we can safely assume that 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 was done where the regime thought it was important to do it.
0: Did the government have much use for the rule of law? I study the Stalinist period, and actually my my current book out is on the Stalinist constitution, which many people tend to view as a farce that Stalin simply put out and then promptly ignored and initiated repression in 1937. You think that the government under the Tsar also violated the spirit of the October Manifesto in many ways?
1: Yes and no. I, I mean – the, its viewpoint on the extraordinary security laws w- was not consistent with the spirit. But uh, the complication there is that they had been enacted. Now, they, uh, they initially had a three-year time limit that expired in three years. And then in one of the renewals, that period was changed to one year. So why did they exist? How, how was the czar able to continue them by just issuing a decree that continued them, it's a. I mean, if you think about it, it's a pretty hard constitutional problem uh, because the the power to renew could be seen as just an ordinary executive power granted by the statute, uh, whereas it could be viewed as starting a whole new statute and I mean, the Duma, the liberals and the Duma regarded it the second way and the regime regarded it the first way. I think it would have it would have been consistent with the spirit of the October manifesto to to treat the uh, each renewal as essentially a new statute, therefore requiring Duma approval. The other famous thing that that people point to in terms of abuse of the. The constitutional regime was the uh, the abuses of Article 87, and and that enabled the uh, czar to issue a decree uh, when the when the Duma was not sitting, and it was used for all kinds of purposes. It it seems to me that it's, it's on the whole not that big a menace because there were complicated rules which brought, automatically brought any such decree to an end uh, if the Duma really opposed it, if the Duma voted against it.
0: Well, let's talk about these two things. Um, Let's contextualize the security laws, because they were implemented in response to revolutionary terror, were they not? Absolutely,
1: just like the field courts martial.
0: And would you like to describe maybe for our audience, the scope of the revolutionary terror? Well, uh,
1: at the time of the field courts, martial, the uh, assassinations were assassinations, mainly of government officials were running at a rate of 300 a month. So, I mean, that's, (laughs) that's a very high uh, rate. It seems to be of effective revolutionary terror. Um, and so I, I don't think anyone who thought that order was important uh, and even civilized behavior, uh, any, anyone thinking that would acknowledge that fairly drastic measures were needed. And, and I may say uh, Maklakov definitely was in that group. He, he acknowledged the need for drastic measures,
0: Isn't this fairly common for regimes to implement drastic measures in the face of some sort of terrorist or outside threat? Certainly in 1937, Stalin believes that there's enemies of the people, enemies, maybe Germans, Poles, governments that want to kill him um, that need to be destroyed. It reminds me a little bit, too, of the suspending of habeas corpus during the American Civil War and of more recently the Patriot Act.
1: Well, I don't want to get into the patriarchism which gets <laughs> us into American politics, which I'd rather steer completely clear of but uh uh yes uh of course, at least from what I know of the stalin repressions, most of what he was responding to uh existed more in his brain than anywhere else, but
0: mm-hmm. no? there's a fair amount of um not necessarily assassination attempts, but there is a fair amount of evidence, particularly Arch Getty sites, that the regional officials were not particularly responsive to Moscow. they did rather what they wanted and that there were spy organizations. so one of the reasons Moscow justified its actions is they could not believe people were so incompetent. they believed that instead that this must be willful destruction of the regime. yeah
1: on the other hand, having quotas. For numbers of people who must be sent to the gulag and must be shot is is fairly extreme. But hey, let me let me go back to is yeah. Of course, it's usual. But I think actually, I mean that takes me to uh, one of Malenkov's most famous speeches, which is the one the one attacking the field courts martial. And uh, his argument. Too bad it wasn't in Stalin's head at the time. He was doing what he was doing. Uh, his his basic argument. Was not so much devoted to the savagery of the courts, although he, uh, as, as I said, talking about the death penalty, he, he depicted that in savage terms. But was more uh, directed to what this does to the state, and the argument was that if, if you have a completely lawless state uh, killing people with no justification, you you end up losing the protection of law. And, and as he says, you end up with chaos. Uh, and the, the uh, I don't know if you know uh, A Man for All Seasons, the, the play by Robert Bolt. No. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a play about Sir Thomas More. And there's some, some character, uh, sort of flunky in More's house, but flunky is not quite the right word, assistant, in Morris household, who wants to do all kinds of things to put down uh, treason uh, and and more? In the words of words chosen by the author, says England is is, uh, is has tree, trees laws all over the way. They're trees in a forest. You cut down all those trees, and you'll have no place to hide. And essentially, Michael Koff was making that argument to Stilipin, uh in 1907, uh, attacking the field courts marshal. And I think uh, of course the, the person who's running an autocratic government is, is likely to uh, feel that the immediate benefits of eradicating people who are causing trouble are, are at a very high value. But from the country's point of view, uh, eradicating the rule of law uh, is very important in a negative sense. You, you you touched on the question of whether Russia, at least I think I heard you touching implicitly on the question of whether uh, Russia is somehow genetically barred from being a rule of law state. And I've thought a lot about that when I talk To anyone about this book, they, they tend to respond in that uh, way. I think that's wrong. I think the, the legacy of serfdom was very powerful. It, it resulted in private property uh, being held in very low esteem because the, the main holders of private property were people who basically had a deal with the czar that in exchange for their support. He would help them keep the serfs down. Um, so instead of property being a being seen as it has been in the West uh, as basis for independence and therefore resistance to government, uh, it was seen in Russia logically as uh, a tool of oppression. Uh, the, other, the other thing is that you have a uh, you have centuries essentially of an or weaning and over centralized government that's continually working at the suffocation of civil society and civil society seems to me essential for the rule of law because without people organizing in groups, being able to express themselves in groups, uh, you don't have enough resistance to arbitrariness outside the courts and you don't have bodies in the the country who can provide support for the courts. Uh, So um, so there's, a, there's a line that Maklakov used. I forget the context in which he used it, but the meaning is quite obvious. Um, and I'll, I'll give it to you first in English, and then in Russian, and you can correct my Russian. Uh, it's not easy to correct the work of centuries, and so you, you have you have ingrained reactions to things that are are very hard to. Um, Undo, uh, I mean, take the surf, shoot. You have people who sent, essentially have had virtually no rights. So why should they respect rights? Why should they regard uh, a rights-based system as as anything realistic? Uh, that seems to be quite quite a natural reaction on their part. Um, and and you don't you don't have all the kinds of uh, Contracts, agreements, and so forth. Uh, independent building of new things, both, both privately and uh, and in public through sort of local government, that you would expect in a in a society that can resist um, an overpowerful government. Um, so I, so oh I, I promised I'd give you the uh, the Russian did that come true in Russian?
0: Yeah. perhaps
1: <laughs> only because I first gave you the English, but.
0: So for you and you think for Maklakov, the development of an independent civil society was paramount. Because I know during the Stalinist era, they did at least pay lip service to the uh, formalities of law. Actually, um, The procurator most associated with Stalinist repression, Vyshinsky, actually uh, wanted codified, trained legal cadres as opposed to Krilenko's revolutionary legality, where people sort of ruled with their revolutionary gut because he wanted people to have genuine expectations. You do this, this happens, that every time you know what is going on, it is codified. Even when they executed people, they went through the formality of filing the charges against them. It didn't help that they were already dead when they did it, but they actually paid attention to the uh, forms of the law and of legality. But I think what you're talking about, not having a civil society, was important because everything was co-opted by the party. There were no alternative or open means for discussion. And so for Makhlakov, this was really important, too, to have an independent civil society outside of czarist control? Yes,
1: he doesn't talk that much about civil society itself. But there, there are a couple of things. One is uh, his, the reforms that he favors and, the, and the, his speech attacking the pale of settlement, calling for repeal of that, is, is a particularly good example. What, he, what he's opposed to is rules. Uh, he's opposing the substantive rules which, which invite arbitrary enforcement. And they, the reason they invite arbitrary enforcement, I think, and I, th- I think he pretty much says, is that they don't fit the pluralism of Russian society itself. So you have, you have, obviously, Jews in Russian society, and you have interactions between Jews and non-Jews, which in a in a free society are likely to be healthy, positive reactions. Uh, but so you have you have lots of society that benefits from the Jews being around, but you have all these rules which say they shouldn't even be there. They should be back within the pale. And so that just invites arbitrary enforcement and bribery. Um, same thing or similar thing on a, on a less dramatic scale with the old believers. So... Um, Change, changing the law so that it doesn't have these invitations to arbitrary government behavior. Uh, these these compromises between the way the law is worded and what society actually needs, the way people behave, um, these prevent civil society from developing. He does. He does. As I say, he doesn't talk about civil society as such much, but. But a couple of things, a couple of other things, besides the natural tendency of his, uh, his reforms to, to lead that way, uh, he participated in financing uh, the translation of Tocqueville into Russia. That certainly suggests uh, that he was drawn towards civil society. So I can't think of anyone who more completely advocates the importance of civil society Another thing is his personality. He was uh, a person of enormous gregariousness and sociability. He was he was a joiner um, at every stage in his life, uh, and um, he had an incredibly wide acquaintance. So he um, he fitted civil society. Uh, he, he in a sense depended on civil society and and promoted examples of it. Um, So, well, those two things. And then the the fit between his personality and the nurturing of civil society and the fit between his specific uh, programmatic uh, positions and the nurturing of civil society that I think make him uh, the model for that.
0: So let's talk about sort of the big thorn in civil society in Russia, which is the peasantry. Um, I know you said that article 87 was not such a big deal, but did not Stalipin and use it to ram through his agrarian reforms. And he did, yeah, he, did he did,
1: but I mean, I think the, um, the, of course the, the, the Duma had the power to uh, vote it down. Now, it was a qualified power because if the Duma had voted it down, uh, the Duma would almost certainly, I think we could say certainly uh, have been dismissed. In fact, that's sort of what was what was underlying the uh, the so-called coup d'etat of June 3, 1907. Um, but it, it never even tried. Um, the other thing is I, I think... I, I mean, I know that this is very controversial. I think the Stilipan reforms were uh, certainly designed as a way to bring the peasantry on to be rights holding people, uh, farmers rather than uh, peasants, um, people who would be growing for the market and selling in the market and, and would understand, would come to know the rights associated with Market transactions, um, and would and would be much more independent of their former uh, land landowners. Um, now, I, I, there there are ways in which it was done, which were inconsistent with the rule of law. Of, uh, apart from its having been put through under Article Eighty Seven, the uh, the first is the role of the land captains land captains in its initial. Uh, implementation. But that changes over the years to implementation by the Ministry of Agriculture, which was far less associated with the uh, uh, relatively lawless action of people in the Ministry of Internal Affairs, which the land captains were.
0: Well if I recall Makelkov was also opposed to the Corvée labor system and the existence of peasant volist courts which kept them as a separate caste in society, correct?
1: Right, that's true. Yes, yes. So th- those, are, those are both things uh, that he was active on, which would have, uh, well, to some extent, the, the change in the, in the rural court system did happen, but it only took effect in, in 1912, so it was too late to have any uh, long-run effect. And the, the change of the Corvée system uh, didn't happen at all. But no, th- those two certainly would have uh, helped in uh, taking the peasants into the uh, into a, into a world of uh, free association.
0: So do you think that Makhlakov's brand of basically liberal reform rule of law by tiny steps, gradually expanding rights, would have had a chance to succeed in Russia had there not been the war?
1: I think so. and. You know, I mean, you, you very rightly framed it in terms of having a chance. I, we're talking about improving the odds. And I think uh, every success he had slightly improved the odds. Every frustration of what he was trying to do uh, set the either set the odds back or fail to improve them. Uh, and certainly the war... Uh, set them back enormously because it uh, it put the whole country under enormous stress, stress way beyond uh, what would have prevailed in ordinary times. And also, it uh, as the the uh, essentially the provisional government was unable to to keep order both among the soldiers and among and, and deserters and, and so forth and throughout the country really, uh it meant that the country fell into chaos the sort of chaos that uh warned of is falling from as following from uh abuses of law.
0: It seems like Maklakov had a lot of people against him. Uh, The government wasn't particularly interested in these gradual liberal reforms. Even within his own party, they thought that perhaps he was not going far enough, quick enough. Um, Do you think that he really stood any chance of having any successful allies?
1: Oh, he had allies. And and on many of his uh, substantive reforms in the Third Duma, uh, the left was generally with him, though they, they might have wanted more. But um, I do think the, the left, his left allies, were remarkably slow to see the advantage of step-by-step progress. I mean, you see that most extravagantly in the debate over uh, those rules relating to the peasant estate, which you've alluded to. Because you have Maklakov working for what he acknowledged was modest improvement. You have Kerensky, who actually acknowledged that he favored what Maklakov was proposing, but Kerensky adding or proposing amendments, which would have been sure to thwart what Maklakov was doing, because they would have would have clearly resulted in state councils rejecting uh, the bill. So, and, and and worse, Kerensky uh, used it to abuse uh, Maklakov by suggesting that a- anyone who was working to promote something that was started by Stalipan, which was true of these uh, peasant estate reforms, uh, must be somehow a mini-Stilipan, and therefore, in Kerensky's terminology, uh, the devil incarnate.
0: Well, it seemed like Milyakov so I- also, worked to be as difficult for the government and as difficult towards compromise as he could?
1: Uh, yeah, I would say not to the extent of Koretsky, but, but yes, he certainly, he had this focus on things that he must've known he was never going to get, at least never going to get in the form that he was asking. And, um, he kept coming back to them and back to them and making their, making allegiance to them um, central to any kind of interparty alliance. Um, so I mean, there's quite a lot in the book in the in the fight over that. Um, yeah, I and I, I mean, I think you're, you're touching on a problem uh, which does relate to certainly that era in Russian history, um, a sort of intellectual uh, insistence on some perfect vision, rather than uh, steadfast uh, progress towards towards their vision. On the whole, Makhlukov had a little quarrel with their vision.
0: Do you think this simply came down to a lack of experience in any sort of representative or negotiatory government? These people- I think that's a big
1: thing. I, th- I think that's very big. And it's hard to believe that, uh, if, uh, Machikov had spent the 20 years before 1906 as a member of a legislative body, wheeling and dealing and trying to get, trying to advance an agenda, he would have, uh, behaved the way he did. So, see more extreme. Yeah.
0: so you talk about this book as sort of a model of what to do and what not to do sort of for developing nations. What would be the takeaway lesson for a modern world dealing with sort of an arbitrary government, maybe for uh, Zimbabwe, for example, which recently got rid of Mugabe.
1: Uh, actually, I mean, the, uh, that's something I kept thinking about writing the book because offensive as the Czarist regime was just not in a league with uh, Zimbabwe or uh, the countries involved in the Arab Spring um, I mean the the you know it had a it had a legislature in the period we're talking about they were, Pretty free elections to the legislature. There was a narrow franchise, to be sure, uh, but there was pretty widespread debate going on, uh, and you know newspapers were were oppressed, but they usually could be reborn under a different name uh, within about twenty four hours. So it was it was ineffective harassment on the whole, as far as I can make out. The uh, people like Mugabe. Uh, have found ways of uh, repressing speech and communication and association uh, that leave Nicholas II in the dust. Uh, and uh, I I guess all all I'd all I'd say about that is that uh, I would hope that when uh, new regimes come to power there, they they bear in mind that. Um, the rule of law is something that will surely advance your country and may even advance you because it may save you from the kind of dramatic end that uh, Nicholas II went to. Um, that's. Uh, it may be that, that that argument requires too much consideration of possible future risk for the modern dictator to accept, but... Um, I guess it, it also argues for uh, for people opposing those regimes to bear the rule of, rule of law in mind. There's a terrible bind on this, it seems to me, and I talk about this in the very last chapter. Um, if people who favor the rule of law and liberal democracy behave in the kind of reasonable way that is associated with that kind of system of government, uh, they don't put as much pressure on the regime as violent revolutionaries do. So in a way, the violent revolutionaries helped them. I mean, this, this, uh, this stalled the cadet party in 1906 because they felt indebted to the revolutionaries for the revolution of 1905 so they they were very hesitant to criticize them at all, but uh, any any belief in the rule of law or more generally in ordered liberty would have to criticize those people. So um, the the violent revolutionaries can contribute, but if they if the rule of law people if the moderates get swamped or silenced, then the regime change is likely not to lead to anything very different.
0: How important do you think the cultural aspect of uh, adopting the rule of law is? Because many people would argue, for example, in Russia, there is no real cultural resonance for the rule of law. They've never had it. The Tsarist government was arbitrary. The Soviet system was arbitrary. This government is often arbitrary. And a lot of times people simply deal with it by seeing a law they don't like and doing the exact opposite is fairly common in Russia. Um, they're like ninjas with it. It's it's actually really interesting to watch. Whereas Americans and, for example, Maklakov's French people that he admired have had these gradual steps to it, and it has become ingrained in our conscious. Do you think that that is a really important thing that was missing from Maklakov's revolution?
1: Yes, I, I, I do think it's important, I, and and so and that's why it's it takes time. I think I, I, again. The uh, the line from the uh it's not easy to undo the work of centuries, and um, you know the development of, of civil society and respect for law is extremely hard. And I, I didn't mention one of the things that was uh, an obstacle to Maklakov, and that it was the view of the literary elite, including his friend Tolstoy, uh, that the rule of law was was worthless. He took. He took no interest, whatever, in the rule of law. They took no interest, the, the literary elite took no interest in the judicial reforms of Alexander II. Um, so that's, that's really extraordinarily depressing when you think of it and and does speak to the uh, absence of it in the culture.
0: So, uh, Steve, we've come to about 55 minutes. Um is there one more thing you'd like to touch on before we wrap up this interview?
1: Well, I mean, the only, uh, the only thing that uh, this is uh, very much for Americans. See, uh, recent times have made more people talk about the rule of law than did a little while ago. Um, and so i I've, I've I've looked at, looked at Maklakov as a, possibly a role model for modern times. Let me take two criticisms of him. Trotsky calling him above all uh, every party, which Trotsky did with a sneer, to be sure. But, it,
0: but Well, Trotsky it, was sort of biased there, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh <very much. laughs> of, course,
1: of course. But uh, he, uh, it did reflect the fact that, that Maklakov was was not someone who followed party lines obediently. Uh, then there's Milyukov's phrase for him, that he had the tendency of a lawyer to see uh, some good in other people in his opponent's views and some fault in his own. That's, <laughs> it seems to me an extraordinarily valuable quality. It's odd that it should be singled out as a fault. Then the speech on the field courts martial, which I mentioned with the the focus on something that I'm sure he saw Stalinean would see the uh, what were the prerequisites of ordered liberty, and that the inconsistency of the field court's martial with that. So he, he hit on a on a um, you know a theme that was part of Stalinean's mindset, although obviously in the field court's martial it had taken a back seat. Um, and then I thought his handling of Kerensky uh, was very good. He never there, Kerensky's uh, interventions in that debate, I think, are pretty shameful. They're uh, ad hominem arguments, they're misquotations, misattributions of things to uh, to Melnikov and others. And Melnikov, on the whole, doesn't really answer them because they're uh, so. Uh, inconsistent with what has gone on Uh, and on the subject of Tulipan and Kerensky has used the name Tulipan to to blacken Makarakov's name he says simply when I thought Tulipan was wrong I opposed him when I thought he was right or has done something good I favor it which of course related to this decree on uh, the peasant estate Uh, I think we need a lot more of that
0: Okay, well, thank you very much, Steve. Uh, It's been a wonderful interview. It was a very interesting book.
1: Well, thank you for listening to me and and reading the book.
0: (laughs) No problem.